Well, I invite you to turn, if you'd like, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 to the parable of the prodigal son. We're going to begin reading at verse 17 down through the end of the chapter. Before we do so, I invite you to pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. It clarifies our motives and our lives. It shows us how we are called to live. It shows us how we fail. It shows us Jesus in whom we have hope. And then it shows us how we are called to serve you faithfully because you've saved us from our sins. And as we look at this parable, the end of it, and particularly at the elder brother, we ask that you would show us what we need to learn, convict us where we are living like him, and grant us true repentance, even as he needed repentance. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Luke uh, chapter 15, beginning at verse 17, speaking of the younger brother, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, I'm, uh, just to begin with, I'm heavily indebted to Kenneth Bailey, Tim Keller, John MacArthur, B.B. Warfield, their work on this parable. There's some really great stuff, Poet and Peasant by Bailey and Prodigal God by Tim Keller and John, Sermon, uh, John MacArthur's sermons online. And one thing that uh, people, commentators all over the map, understand and point out is that this isn't just a parable about one prodigal son. This is actually a parable about two lost sons. The younger son is lost. And so was the older son, but their lostness takes different forms. The younger son's lostness is probably how the world would typically regard being lost. 
living a life of wickedness, rebellion, open sin, not afraid to rebel for all to see, uh, living in sexual immorality, drunkenness, just the party lifestyle. That is what the world generally recognizes and sees, even if they're not believers, uh, as a lost person. But there's another kind of lostness here in this parable. And you might actually say this is arguably one of the main points because that's where the parable ends and there's no conclusion to it. <laughs> there's no wrapping it up. We're actually left with a cliffhanger. And that Jesus is arguably Jesus' point because remember he's in the midst of scribes and Pharisees who can't believe that he's eating with sinners and that he welcomes them, that he has fellowship with them. They can't get it. And so he tells the parable in their midst and the parable ends in the hopes the parable would end that they'd finally have to think through what their problem is because they are the elder brother and the tax collectors and sinners are indeed being welcomed, but they also have something they need to do because their relationship with God is not right. So there's another kind of lostness. It's a lostness of religiosity, self-righteousness, the Pharisees and the scribes. On the outside, you won't really see it. They'll be part of churches. If they hear a rule, they'll keep it. Externally, their lives look spick and span clean, inside full of dead people's bones, like Jesus talked about in Matthew 23. But they will strive to keep all of God's rules as best as they can, but they hate the Father too. They don't love God. They don't love his salvation. They just want things from God, but they're going at it differently. They don't say, God, give me my portion of the inheritance. They say, God, I'm going to do everything that you've asked me to do, and you owe me. You must give me my due. Well, I want to pick up here with verse 25, staring at this older son for a moment. His older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Well, this is just a typical portrait of an older son, right? This elder brother, this self-righteous person. He's in the field working. His younger brother, the rebellious one, is out in wild living until he comes to himself. But this older son, doing everything the father's asked him to do. He's out in the field working hard. Who knows what he was doing? Maybe he was just managing people. Maybe he was actually doing some of the work. But he was dutiful. He was obedient. He was hard working. He did everything his father asked him to do. He's the epitome of a rule keeper. He is really the complete opposite of his younger brother. And there's a huge contrast set up between the two. The younger brother, lost, wicked, rebellious. All the Pharisees and the, and the scribes would have said, yep, he has a problem. But when this older son is put in front of them, working out in the field, the Pharisees and the scribes likely would have concluded, this is the guy we're looking for. This is someone we can relate to. This is someone we love following. Tell us more about him. At the end of the workday, the older son came in and he heard music and dancing. There's a party going on. Remember, this is the fattened calf party. Maybe one to 200 people, the whole village coming over. Your close neighbors are at the party. There's a celebration. The lost son's been found. We had to celebrate. <laughs> and we're not told why this older son hadn't been at the party. Because an older son would have been expected in that day, doing some background studies and cultural studies, would have been expected to be at the party, schmoozing with everybody, and even one of the main hosts at the party along with the father. 
but he's absent. The party started. Now, parties don't have a hard start line like ours where we might say, hey, be at the party at 5 o'clock p.m., don't be late. It would just be a party that started. People would catch wind of it, and they would show up throughout the day. But here's one of the most important characters in this party, and he's absent when the party starts. And it's at the end of the day, he comes in from the field, and the party's already going on. And he doesn't even know what the party's about. What's going on here? He has to ask a servant. He doesn't ask his father. As far as we can tell, he wasn't invited to it. He had to catch word of it. Now, we're not told why. Some have surmised that the father knew that the son couldn't stand him. He knew his younger son didn't love him, and he knows his older son doesn't love him. He's just using him for what he can get out of him, that two-thirds part of the inheritance. But in any case, he was not at the beginning of the party. He comes in and learns about it. What does the, younger, does the older son conclude about this when he discovers that the party's already ongoing? He's angry. He's upset. He doesn't like the party at all. And we're told there's music and dancing, right? There's joy. There's a great party going on. This is already a contrast with the older brother. He's not for this music and dancing. He's not for some celebration that doesn't involve him. He's not for using his inheritance and what's coming to him to be used on his younger brother. This is the life of a religious hypocrite, beloved. Someone who hates God, who can't stand him, who does not like his salvation, who does not want to be saved through Jesus, who does not want to be insulted by saying you're sinful and you need a relationship with the Father that can only come through Jesus Christ. This is the life of a religious hypocrite. Dutiful, obedient, externally will look amazing, but is far from God. That's this elder brother. People on the outside in the world they often confuse elder brothers with genuine Christians. They confuse Pharisees with those who are born again because externally their lives may look a bit the same, but there are radical differences even on the outside. I just want to highlight right from the start that this older brother is indeed lost, even though he's living in the father's house on his estate working for him. He looks like he may, of all people, have close fellowship with the father, but he doesn't. Well, the servant that he asked, likely a younger boy, said to him, verse 27, your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. You can almost see the steam rolling out of this older brother's ears. Received him back. So the father let the son back in, gave him a welcome, let him come waltzing all the way into the family and received him back safe and sound. Now that's one word in the Greek. And the word sometimes is translated uh, from the Hebrew word shalom or peace. So what's being said here by the servant is your father welcomed him back. He did not make him go through a groveling process. The Jewish version of repentance, prove yourself, show us how badly you feel, sit outside the father's estate and look miserable. He did not make him do that at all. He welcomed him back safe and sound in peace. Their relationship is restored. That's what this servant is telling the older brother. Now, this is astonishing to the older brother that the father would do this. In the mind of the Pharisees and the older brother, the only way to enter back into right standing in a family would be to work your way back in. You'd be on probation. His younger son did not have to do that. 
The younger son's entrance into the family of God was purely by grace, and grace is something elder brothers, they just don't get. Grace is a gift which cannot be purchased with money or effort. Forgiveness is free and full with no contributions from the sinner. Reconciliation is without requirement. There's no place for groveling or self-pity. Reconciliation is something that God initiates. There's no need for groveling or self-pity. It doesn't earn our way into a restored relationship with God. The only thing which elder brothers understand is work, merit, earning your keep, earning your way. You got to pay for it. That's what the elder brothers understand. So we heard this, the elder brother did, and we're told in verse 28, he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. you never, I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. What an image this gives us of self-righteous Pharisees, of older brothers. There are a few things I want to highlight about what an older brother life looks like. Those who are religious hypocrites. Elder brothers disrespect God, verse 29. Notice how he begins. Look. Didn't say father. Didn't address him respectfully. Just look. Like, I'm going to set you straight. No respect at all for his father. Elder brothers don't respect God. They don't love God. They don't reverence God. It looks like they do. They talk like they do. But they don't really respect and love God. They're also angry. He was angry, verse 28. He's angry at God. Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed you. He's angry at his younger brother. Did you catch that wind? son of yours? Just angry. That's often the case with those who are self-righteous. They're angry at others who get grace extended to them that they don't deserve, they didn't work for. Makes them irate, makes them really upset. Elder brothers are also joyless, catch that. These many years I have served or slaved for you. It was not a joy to serve his father. It was just slavery. Look, I have gone and done everything you've asked me to do. I have taken up the plow and put it on my shoulders and I have done this faithfully for you. His heart wasn't in it. He didn't love the father, but in his mind, it didn't matter. The elder brother said, I've served you. And oftentimes elder brothers, they just have no joy at all about the, the life of following after God, right? The Christian life, the professed Christian life is just a drudgery, obeying God's commandments, all this, just drudgery, no joy whatsoever. They don't understand the gospel. There can't be any joy. It's just, I've got to earn my keep. I've got to do more. I've got to keep trying harder. There's no joy in that. They also despise repentant sinners, verse 30, when this son of yours, he doesn't call him his brother. <laughs> Couldn't be more distance there. When this son of yours, this is your problem. This is you and your son. When this son of yours, <laughs> nothing to do with me. I ain't stooping that low. I'm not like him. I'm not like you. When the son of yours came, elder brothers so often despise repentant Christians. And they look at the free grace that was given to them. They look at this entrance into heaven. They look at this welcome back into the family like, what, what gives? How can this person be received back full and free? They didn't work. They didn't earn this. They just despise that there are people who are in the kingdom who, if you looked at their life a year earlier or five years earlier or 10 years earlier, you would never guess that they would be in the kingdom. 
And elder brothers are more concerned with material wealth and prosperity than with the kingdom of heaven. Verse 30, this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Now, the younger son did devour the father's property with prostitutes and wild and reckless and prodigal living. That's accurate. But he has come to his senses. He has repented. He has turned to God. And there is a much bigger story going on here. And now they are partying. And do you catch what the elder brother can only see? He doesn't see, oh, he came to salvation. This is amazing. He doesn't see things through the lens of faith and the kingdom of God. Like, whoa, my younger brother came back. Your son came back. Let's party. This is wonderful. Hugs around. Let's go celebrate. I want a 16-ouncer, right? I want a 24-ounce steak. Let's, Let's do this. He doesn't see that at all. What does he see? This younger son, all he did was just force you to take a big hit on your estate. Concerned about his material wealth. And so often that is indeed, the Pharisees were certainly all about that. They were greedy. Jesus called them out in Matthew 23 on it. And those who are self-righteous are often very concerned about this world's goods and possessions. I serve God so my life here can go better. I serve God and be obedient to his commands, not out of the joy of knowing him, but because I want God to have my back and I want him to bless me materially. And so they despise others who challenge their material wealth and and prosperity. Elder brothers also won't fellowship with repentant sinners. He refused to go in, won't have anything to do with this. I don't want to have anything to do with your life. My younger brother, I don't want to go into your party. I don't want to be at your baptism, your profession of faith. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Uh Uh-uh, you didn't earn your way in. This grace is unacceptable. Would have no fellowship with him. And oftentimes when elder brothers are in the churches, which they oftentimes are, they create categories of people in the church. There's the in people and the out people. There's the ones who are measuring up and pulling their own weight. And then there's the ones who aren't. And they'll only associate with the ones who are measuring up and pulling their own weight in their eyes. Those who externally fit the bill. Those who look the part, do the part in their eyes. But the other ones who wrestle with addictions and sins and who aren't good at hiding it, they're the ones on the out. They're the ones they will have nothing to do with. He's not going to go into the party. They love a merit-based lifestyle. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who has devoured your property, you killed the fattened calf for him. He's just upset with the math, right? This is what elder brothers do. They add up the math. I've been serving you. That's at least worth one goat, right? It's not the fattened calf, but notice he said, you didn't even kill a young goat for me. (laughs) One year of service, that's a goat. Three years of service, that's three goats. 10 years of good service, that's a fattened calf. He's done nothing and you got the fattened calf for him. Well, if I, I've been serving here 10 years, I should have the fattened calf and the calf's uh, parents and I should have the calf's siblings and we, we should be having a massive party. How does this add up? I've served you, you've done nothing. Begrudging obedience equals zero party. Rebelliousness, repentance, and believing in you and restoration to you, reconciliation with you equals a fattened calf party. How does that work? And again, in an elder brother's mind, Christianity, true religion, is a mathematical formula to be figured out in their minds. What do I have to amass? How much obedience 
Do I need to add up one plus one plus one before it equals acceptance with the Father? But grace defies math, beloved. Grace defies math and says, actually, there's nothing you can do. In fact, there's a new math in the world of grace because then Jesus' obedience becomes ours. <laughs> That's some radical math. Elder brothers can't understand it. Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal Gone, described elder brothers this way. Elder brothers have an undercurrent of anger toward life circumstances. They hold grudges long and bitterly. They look down at people of other races, religions, and lifestyles. They experience life as joyless, a crushing drudgery, having little intimacy and joy in their prayer lives, and have a deep insecurity that makes them overly sensitive to criticism and rejection, yet fierce and merciless in condemning others. And here's maybe the biggest thing about this elder brother that stands out. Elder brothers believe God is wrong to forgive sinners. God is not fair. Verse 29, I never disobeyed your command. Catch this charge. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. That's a charge against his father. Father, you're not fair. Father, this is wrong. Father, you need to say you're sorry to me. You did this for your younger son, but you've never done this for me. God, you're stingy. You're wrong in this toward me. And this is why the Pharisees and the scribes rejected Jesus. They couldn't wrap their minds around God's love for sinners. They didn't view themselves as sinners. They didn't believe God would extend grace to really big sinners who weren't even trying to earn salvation. Therefore, they concluded that Jesus was not God. No way you're God. God would not do this. God is wrong if he does this, if he celebrates with sinners. And Jesus does that. Therefore, Jesus can't be God. And that's how the scribes and the Pharisees viewed him. In fact, if Jesus was God, he would award only the scribes and Pharisees. And he would tell the tax collectors and sinners, yeah, give it a little bit. Come to know the law. Come study. Maybe we'll open the doors of our seminary. You can come in and get trained and sit under our rabbis and our professors. And you can learn some stuff. And once you get the hang of it, then you can be in. That's what they would have expected from God if he came into this world. But when Jesus stood in front of them, he welcomed and ate with sinners. And thus they concluded, no way is God like this. No way can you be God. God would not operate this way. God's more fair. Well, now we get a portrait of the father. Verse 28, we're told his father came out and treated him. And then the elder brother gave his speech. And then verse 31, we're told, and he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The language of entreated him in verse 28, his father came out and entreated him. Uh, the language, he, he went right alongside his son. It's a common word. He called alongside of him. He went right alongside of him and stood right next to him. And the father has love for his self-righteous son. You know, the same love that welcomed back the prodigal is now walking outside the party to go try and welcome in the older brother. Isn't this unbelievable? God doesn't despise the self-righteous. God isn't sitting here, oh, if you're a rebellious sinner, you're welcome, but you self-righteous folks, you've got a category of sin that's just unforgivable. No, he's going out to his other son, the other lost one, the self-righteous one who doesn't think he's lost. And he's entreating him. And he's talking to him. You know, it's easy to hate self-righteous people, right? 
which is self-righteous, to hate self-righteous people. But look at what's going on in God. He's not despising the older son. And the language he uses, son, translating SV, said to him, son, you are always with me. It's actually the word for child. All throughout the parable so far, the normal word for son was used. But here the word for child is used. It's just so tender. This is the father's heart. Not just son, but oh, my child. I love you. There's affection coming out here toward this self-righteous son who hates him. And Kenneth Bailey said this, the father's expected to be furious. Look, the father's been snubbed. It's a party that the elder brother should have been at. It's a party he should be excited to be at once he realized it was there. And the father should be furious that this elder brother is not in. The father is expected to be furious, but rather there's an outpouring of love. If he orders the son to enter the house and fulfill his duty as a member of the family, the son will certainly obey. But what would be gained? He already has a servant in the person of his son. He wants a son. The father bypasses the omission of a title, the bitterness, the arrogance, the insult, the distortion of fact, and the unjust accusations. There's no judgment, no criticism, no rejection, but only an outpouring of love. In striking contrast to the older son, the father begins with a title and an affectionate one at that. Just incredible love, beloved. He's being reviled and thrown under the bus by his son. And like Jesus, 1 Peter 2, 23, we're told, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Such a great portrait of Jesus Christ here. And he says, look, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. In case the older son was worried, oh, we're going to have to divide the inheritance again. <laughs> he says, look, all that I have, all that is, uh, that's mine is yours. Don't worry about that. Yep, he already got his stuff. You'll get what's coming to you. If the older son had walked back into the party, reconciled to his father, forgiving his brother, they could have thrown two parties. But he doesn't do that. And the father tells him, look, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this year brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found, verse 32. It was fitting, literally. It was necessary, required, or inevitable. Some translations put it this way, we had to celebrate. And that's exactly the language. We had to. There was no other option. It would have been wrong not to celebrate. We couldn't not celebrate. It was absolutely required of us. Like the lady who finds the lost coin, the shepherd who finds the lost sheep, when the lost son is found, we are going to party. And every true believer understands this, right? Of course there's going to be a celebration. This is why sometimes when there's baptisms, professions of faith or whatever, we're clapping, we're hooting, hollering, there's hallelujahs, amen. we're excited. Why? Because somebody repented and came to faith in Christ. This is amazing. This is a joyful occasion. This is the most important occasion in their entire life. Right? More important than having a child, than getting married, than becoming CEO of whatever great company they want to become CEO of. The most important event in a believer's life is the day they came to know the Lord. And maybe arguably the day they go home, right? And they'll go, to, go be with the Lord. It's amazing. We just had to celebrate. Heaven has to celebrate. Frederick Buchner in his book, Magnificent Defeat, 
wrote, there's little that we can point to in our lives as deserving anything but God's wrath. Our best moments have been mostly grotesque parodies. Our best loves have been almost always blurred with selfishness and deceit. But there is something to which we can point. Not anything that we ever did or were, but something that was done for us by another. Not our own lives, but the life of one who died in our behalf and yet is still alive. This is our only glory and our only hope. And the sound that it makes is the sound of excitement and gladness and laughter that floats through the night air from a great banquet. It's one of the best lines I've ever read. It's the portrait of what it's like to be in a community of people who are all saved by God's grace. There's this joy. You ever stood outside a wedding banquet or, or a, a wedding reception? Whether you were a member of it or not, maybe you stepped outside and you listened to it. What's, what do you hear? Lots of laughter, lots of joy. It's a sound of a party. You just want to be back inside, right, to enjoy everything. That's the sound that believers make in the church. It's a party. It's a banquet. It's a place where people are just delighted to belong to this tremendous household by God's grace. But a self-righteous person, they won't celebrate. They don't even understand the event. They don't get the joy and the celebration. Why doesn't a legalistic elder brother understand the joy of a sinner's salvation? Why isn't salvation something exciting to them? Why does the father have to explain it was fitting to celebrate and be glad? Because to a legalist, salvation is something earned through hard work. Salvation is not a joyous occasion, but something owed a person through their hard work. Salvation is just one's due. And there's no joy in just being paid your wage. You're just paid what you think you're due. It's just fair, right? You don't celebrate something that was just fair. Like, oh, I worked, you paid me. That's how other brothers view their relationship with God. But the younger son's party and the party of every Christian is a party of grace. Oh, I worked in sin. And I brought to this relationship sin not hard work and obedience. And you rewarded me with grace and eternal life. Now we're gonna celebrate. <laughs> That's a party, right? That's not my due. I deserve to be eternally destroyed, but you gave me eternal life. That's worthy of a party. What the elder brother can't see is that his sins of pride and self-righteousness are just as heinous in God's sight as the younger brother's sins of rebelliousness and wicked living. It's just as wicked and evil and God-hating to keep God's law in order to try and be saved and selfishly benefited as it is to break God's law. It's just as wicked. It's just as wicked to look at God and say, you could have saved your son a trip. I don't need that cross. I don't need that incarnation. I don't need the resurrection. I got this all on my own. You just give me your law. Just give me some good advice. Give me some rules. I'll figure it out from there. And I'll tell everybody else what they got to do and make them twice the sons of hell that they were before. That's the mindset. That's the lifestyle of an elder brother. The younger brother said, go away. God, your salvation is irrelevant and unimportant. The elder brother says, go away, God. I don't need a savior. I'm fully capable of saving myself. And the story ends just like that. It ends abruptly. Son's lost and is found. We had to celebrate. <laughs> We're left on this cliffhanger, right? Remember the woman caught in adultery in John, end of John 7, early part of chapter 8, ends on a cliffhanger, right? Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We're all left wondering, what did she? What did she do with God's grace? Did she go and live a brand new life? Or did she go out 
and just say, hey, forgiveness is pretty awesome. I just get my slate cleaned off. I'm going to go live however I want now, and I'll come back for more forgiveness later. How did she leave? We don't know. And it forces us to go from looking at her to looking at ourselves. What do I do with the grace of God? God's extended me grace and forgiveness. Do I just go live however I want and say, this is an incredible relationship. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. We can do this until the day I die. Or do I use God's grace saying, this is unbelievable. And now, Lord, I'm going to go out and serve you. Absolutely. I deserve to die. You've given me eternal life. I'm yours. Well, the same kind of ending is happening in this parable. What did the elder son do? We don't know. The father came out to entreat him. Very kind words. Did he go into the party? We don't know. Well, what happened with him? And it forces the scribes and Pharisees, which are the immediate audience, to think, huh, that's us. What are we going to do with this Jesus? Are we going to go into this celebratory party? Are we going to actually start going to these luncheons that he has with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we know what they did, right? They, they crucified him. We know how their story ended. Now, whether or not they came to faith, we don't know. Hopefully, many of them did after they saw Jesus crucified and heard Peter's sermon preached. But, beloved, we have to go from them looking at it to us looking at it. Would I go in? Do I begrudge people God's grace and salvation free when he justifies the ungodly? Do I have that same heart of God that delights to see people come to faith? Would I go into that party? Or would I just stay outside and say, no way, I don't want to be part of this group, this motley crew? It's a great question that each of us has to ask as well. We know that the Pharisees did what Jesus is they crucified him. What have you done with Jesus? Do we hate him for welcoming sinners? Do you view yourself, do I view myself as a cut above all those other people out there in the world who are really big sinners, you know, the felons, the prostitutes, the people who are homeless, right? They probably had it coming on account of some sins, right? So often how people can view outsiders. But me, no, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, I'm trying hard. What is our view of God saving sinners? Because if it's like the Pharisees, if it's like the scribes, if it's like the elder brother, we have great need of repentance. We actually need to go to the Father and say, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. All these years I've been serving you, but I've hated it. And I've hated you. And I need to be saved from my self-righteousness and pride. Please forgive me. And God does. He forgives the rebellious wicked. He forgives the self-righteous, proud, wicked. Only through Jesus. So whom does God welcome into heaven? Does he welcome hardworking, diligent, rule-keeping people who are legalistic and harsh? Or does he welcome lazy, lawless, profligate, careless sinners who make a total wreck of their lives? Both he welcomes if they repent and trust in Jesus. Both are welcomed if they repent and trust in Jesus. But for a self-righteous person, salvation is arguably harder as you read through the Bible. Isn't it interesting that so many tax collectors and sinners were entering the kingdom ahead of whom? Ahead of the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus made that point very clear. Why? Because when you don't think you need to be saved, when you think you're already saved, you have to be convinced that you're not actually saved. You have to get unsaved. 
in order to be saved genuinely. I remember in Springfield, one of the elders of the church, there was a lot of Pharisaism in the town in Springfield in the church life. And he said, you know, the hardest part about evangelizing today is we actually have to unsave people. We have to actually convince them that their years of church membership and their service as a Sunday school teacher never saved them. And it doesn't guarantee that they're saved. Jesus is the one who saves. But they're convinced that on account of their work in the church and their good moral living, that everything's just fine. And so this elder brother stands outside, probably having to debate, do I let go of my pride and self-righteousness and go in, or do I stand on it and go to hell? And that's the choice everyone who's an elder brother has to make. But for both groups of people, the door of salvation is open. The day of salvation is today. God's salvation is open to all. One needs only to repent. So let me ask you, as I've been asking myself, where are you? It's an interesting case study, isn't it? Two kinds of people, the lawbreaker, the law keeper. The one says, I'm going to break every law because that's fun. The one says, I'm going to keep every law because that brings the most pleasure. But they're both doing the exact same thing. God, I want you out of my life or in my, or in my life, but selfishly. I'm going to live for me. And both need to be saved. Now, you don't know my heart. I don't know your heart. Beloved, if we're an elder brother and we are living in self-righteousness, we need to repent. And we can. And God saves self-righteous people every day all over the world. And if we're living in profligacy, rebelling against the law, we need to repent and be saved through Jesus. And all over the world, people are being saved, today even, from the rebelliousness. And if we're in fellowship with God, in the party, then we can just rejoice because God's worked in our hearts and we can sing and we can dance and we can celebrate. Why? Because we've repented and we know God and we have fellowship with him. And there is nothing sweeter than that. Let's pray together.